back with episode 56 of the Data-Driven Strength Podcast. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for uh, showing up again after a, a little bit of a hiatus again. Um, we have some exciting, or at least what we think is exciting news to, to kind of fill you guys in on, um, let, you guys some, let you guys know of kind of a new general direction and uh, approach we want to take with the free content um, that we're putting out, um, as well as answer some questions from... Uh, a recent YouTube video, which is kind of spoiling some of the news here on the front end. And this podcast will kind of serve as an opportunity to discuss um, that YouTube video specifically, which again, we'll get into here in a second, um, in the weeds a little bit more or, or answer some of those questions and take it one step further. So that out of the way, Zach, where, where have you been, man? Yeah, this has been the this first pretty substantial break that we've ever taken with some of the, the free content stuff. Um, it's been for good reason. We've, um, you know, we will be kind of transitioning kind of a new format with a lot of the free content. In addition to that, we've been kind of behind the scenes for, for school and all of our other obligations kind of been working on getting a ton of new projects kind of started. And that's just taken a lot of uh, time, effort, energy, and uh, just kind of all lined up nicely to kind of have a little bit of a break, a little bit of a reset. Um, maybe people are going to be, you know, relieved to not hear our voices for, uh, for a couple cycles of uh, podcast episodes. And hopefully this will be a nice way to resensitize. Ha ha, Josh's dissertation. Nice joke. Um, resensitize you guys to some discussions and, and everything. So, you know, we've been, been, uh, still doing stuff, still working hard, still trying to, uh, you know, put out some cool stuff. Eventually, it's just been more of a long-term investment at the moment um, on a variety of fronts, but excited to get back um, at things. And with that, I will pitch it over to you, kind of, sir, to talk about kind of the new format as you spearheaded the first um, substantial uh, piece towards that effort. Yeah, Zach, Zach's just been sitting on the couch. I don't know what he's talking about. Uh, no, there, there's a lot of exciting stuff kind of coming up. And um, at the end of the day, you know, the research projects taking care of, of one-on-one -on -one clients, things like that, um, have uh, kind of taken priority. And also what's taken priority is instead of sticking with a format in terms of free content that we knew we were going to kind of phase out, we wanted to take that lag time, if you will, um, in order to transition properly to a new format, which um, kind of with the, the main hub of the, the content being um, video based on, on YouTube going forward. Um, at least for, for, for the foreseeable future right now, which takes a little bit more than just Zach and I, right? It's, uh, um, it takes a little bit more production, a little bit more, um, yeah, th there's just, there's just more that goes into it. And ultimately I think it's going to be higher quality content, um, more impactful content, and also hopefully more unique content, not because unique is inherently good, but because I think, um, there's. There's plenty of ways to keep up with the newest studies that come out. Um, a lot of people do a really, really good job of that. And, and that's awesome. And we do that to some degree as well. Um, but what we want to do is try to um, provide different perspectives. And again, not just being unique for being unique sake, because sometimes, you know, the, the, the general opinion of the field or of the crowd is, is right for good reason. Um, but maybe taking it one step further and, um, you know, applying some of the, the skills we have from a, from a research perspective um, and combining that with experience with coaching uh, 
honestly a pretty wide range of, of clientele. I think a lot of people assume we just coach powerlifters, but we we do coach a pretty wide range of individuals. Um, also experienced developing systems um, in a more automated fashion with our infinity programs option, just combining all those and trying to take things one step further, I guess, if you will, and um, put out and, and just prioritize quality. So instead of having super frequent, shorter form content through Instagram, it's going to be less frequent, more medium form type stuff through the YouTube videos. The podcast is still going to stay around. Um, I think it's a really good opportunity to for, for, for the type of individuals that want to go that next step and hear how we think a little bit more, right? YouTube videos, those are generally scripted, right? Whereas a, a podcast is going to be just us sitting down talking about some topics. Um, so just listen to us on two times speed. Hopefully it's not too much of a waste of time. And um, that that's going to stay and it's going to allow us to talk about these topics in a little bit more depth. And also um, something we want to do going forward and kind of listener will probably ask for your help with is interviewing some individuals and having some more discussions. Um, in hindsight, the the podcast where we do have other people on, I think have been very productive discussions. We don't want to have people on just to have them on, to be clear. But um, I think there is a lot to be gained from collaboration with, with other people in the field, people that disagree with us on a certain thing or have a different perspective. Um, at the end of the day, <laughs> when you're doing a PhD, you're very focused on a certain set of skills, a certain body of research, et cetera. And to some degree, you have to accept that you might have blind spots. Just that's kind of the cost of the focus that comes with um, with research at times. Um, so having other people to collaborate with in a way and 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 uh, get their perspectives, I think will will only improve the quality and the uh, uh, essentially the 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 service we're pro providing through free content to to people that choose to consume it. So in short, um, subscribe to us on YouTube. I think it'll be, I think it'll be good stuff. We have, um, kind of the, the general idea of what the upcoming topics will be. And I think it's exciting stuff and I'm, I'm excited to hear what you guys all think and, and continue to improve as we go. Anything you want to add there, Mr. Zach? No, not too much. I'm just, uh, I'm excited. I, th I think like you said, we've, we've had a lot of success at least <laughs> we feel like we have with some of the shorter form stuff. And I think we've done our best to make that as impactful as we could. And we've learned a ton along the way of how to do that better and do that worse. Um, but I'm just excited to take kind of this next chapter of kind of focusing on that moderate form stuff. Like you said, I think that can be, if we get some more experience doing it, figure out kind of our spin on it, how to do it our way. Um, I think that can be pretty impactful stuff and, and ultimately hopefully come to some, some novel ideas. I think that's kind of the goal of all this and the direction we want to head is not looking to just, you know, be like a news outlet, try to, try to be more of a, more of that kind of think tank where we're really trying to push, um, the way we understand this stuff and ultimately challenge the way that we conceptualize the ideas and ultimately make them more effective for everybody's training. Um, so I think, you know, doing that in the way that we've kind of outlined here, not only just the way that we're going to conceptualize the videos that we make, but also just combining that with discussions with other people, um, often with people that maybe have a different take on a given area than us. I think all those things are just going to be really good kind of soil for, for that kind of concept to, to grow, um, as opposed to just trying to, you know, keep pace with that kind of that treadmill of research that always kind of comes out and just kind of reporting, um, findings. I think, that's ultimately kind of what we're trying to find the best way to be the most impactful with kind of that concepts. So I'm just excited. I think it'll be cool. 
Um, but without further ado, Josh, you had the first one. You uh, took the deep dive and tried to slay the dragon that is power building. So you had a really nice video that kind of went from the, the concept of the power building from top to bottom. Go ahead, give us a kind of a basic recap of what you discussed in the YouTube video. What is power building? Um, what are kind of the basic tenets, the the main concepts? And then we'll kind of go deeper from there. Yeah, I'll, I'll keep this. I'll try to keep this relatively brief because you could just watch the video and you should watch the video. Um, but I also want to quickly recap for a review if you have already watched it. Um, and just to get everyone up to speed if you if you choose not to watch it. Um, so, so the way I think that makes the most sense to go about this is just to... Uh, compare what I like to call the shotgun approach and the sniper approach. So when we think about power building training, we want both strength outcomes and hypertrophy outcomes, right? And in a lot of ways, those are complementary, but especially as training age increases and, and the individual gets more advanced, they can be at odds with each other to some degree. Um, and different variables are going to be more important for for one outcome compared to the other right so put simply if you look into the research uh the best way to optimize strength in a given time period uh of a training study call that whatever six to, to 15 weeks six to 16 weeks something like that um that's going to be different than the best way to optimize hypertrophy outcomes in the short term which i think is worth just like sitting on for a second and, and really letting that sink in because i think a lot of people take that for granted um from what we've seen from just, you know, other people talking about this stuff is I think a lot of people conflate the two. So what I said, it, just, it makes intuitive sense probably when I say it, but a lot of people, again, conflate the two, right? They take the 10 to 20 sets, for example, recommendation that might come from the hypertrophy research and apply it to strength. I'm not necessarily saying that's a bad recommendation, but just know where that comes from and have that lens for it, right? Um, now we could go into whether 10 to 20 is a good recommendation for hypertrophy, but we'll put a pin in that. Um, so with that said, which which variables, actually, let, let's go back to that analogy of shotgun versus sniper, right? The shotgun approach would be, okay, let's just try to maximize all training variables, every single set, and then we're going to grow and uh, get stronger, right? And that's true to some degree, but it's probably going to drive you into the ground in terms of, in terms of fatigue. It might not be practical and you might compromise, right? Because ultimately... If you're trying to maximize load on the bar, for example, which is seems to be important for strength, um, you might not be able to tolerate quite as much training volume, which seems to matter for hypertrophy. So you kind of need to make some, some trade-offs or at least be more precise. And that leads me to the sniper approach, which is generally how I like to think of things. I would prefer to have this more polarized sniper approach where each set is more or less focused on one goal right? Either strength or hypertrophy, which is what the individual wants. Um, and that's not to say like when you're training for hypertrophy, you're not training for strength because I would say good hypertrophy training is also good strength training if it's for the prime movers for squat bench deadlift. Um, and that's not to say that doing a top triple on squat is not a good hypertrophy set. It's probably decent, right? Um, but I think where a lot of people go wrong is when they go do uh, five sets of three at RP9 and they think that's good hypertrophy training and good strength training, whereas it's maybe okay for both and often unsustainable for a lot of people. And then it's just hard to, to accumulate a good amount of training with that, that sort of thing, that maximalist approach, right? So 
with that said, again, sniper approach is generally what we're, we're vouching for here. Um, now let's quickly go through like the main training variables in terms of uh, each outcome and which uh, like, like which variables matter the most for each outcome. So let's start with training volume. Volume seems to matter for both outcomes in short. And if you're interested in kind of the papers I'm drawing on for this, check out the YouTube video. Um, our, our lovely video editor, Velu, did a great job putting up uh, like the, the references visually during the, the video itself. Um, for hypertrophy, seems to matter a good amount. I do think we're, we're in need of, of kind of an update on that front, but um, it seems to matter to some degree. And I'm pretty confident saying that more volume is generally going to lead to more growth. For strength, I feel comfortable saying the same thing, but my confidence is less. And uh, based on my read of the research and the, the analyses we have right now, the dose response doesn't seem to be quite as strong. Or in other words, you might kind of plateau in terms of strength outcome uh, maximization or, or strength outcomes in general um, with less sets. So volume matters for both, but probably a little bit more for hypertrophy. Now for those sets, how close should they be to failure, right? Um, for hypertrophy, seems to matter a good amount. Uh, we don't know exactly how much, um, but that relationship probably exists. Um, we're we're going to have a whole new, uh, a whole episode going over um, our recent meta-analysis that Zach led um, when we, we kind of feel comfortable when the dust settles and we can kind of talk about that more thoroughly. But based on uh, an analysis led by Zach, seems to matter a good amount for hypertrophy. Again, we don't know exactly what that relationship looks like. Um, but that's definitely a point in the column for, um, for volume or for hypertrophy, right? Proximity to failure seems to matter a good amount for strength. Proximity to failure doesn't seem to matter really at all. Um, that relationship is more or less flat. And this is something we've been kind of, uh, drilling home for, for a few years now. Um, and I think Zach's analysis does a really good job of portraying this. So once you have a given load on the bar, it doesn't seem to really matter essentially how many reps you do with it right? Or the, the RP at a given load doesn't matter quite as much as the load itself. So that leads to the next variable, which is load. And that seems to matter a good amount for strength, right? Um, now that doesn't mean you're going to go daily max, right? And use hundred percent of your one RM for every single set, every single session, that sort of thing. Um, but to some degree, you want to maximize load on the bar within the constraints of the entire design of the program, the tolerance of the individual, that sort of thing. Um, whereas for hypertrophy, load doesn't seem to really matter at all in a very wide range. Really anything that feels like a good hypertrophy set in terms of rep range is probably a good hypertrophy set. Once you start getting below, I'd say probably four reps, you know, we're probably not maximizing hypertrophy on a per set basis. Um, and once you get to pretty obnoxious rep ranges, like 30, 35 plus, again, we're probably missing out on some hypertrophy gains, probably just because it's almost impossible to actually like get close to failure in, in those cases. So that covers the, the main variables I wanted to talk about. Frequency is another one. I mentioned it in the video. We'll just put, put that one to the side. It's frequency is an interesting one. It doesn't really seem to independently drive anything, but it of course matters when you kind of consider the interplay between all these variables, because they do in fact interplay, right? Um, so to summarize for hypertrophy, you want to prioritize volume and proximity to failure for strength, volume, a moderate amount, and then uh, load is the most important variable. Um, and just as I'm saying this, I'm thinking some people might misinterpret and think you want to be a maximalist in terms of those variables um, and do as many sets as you possibly can or train all the way to failure every single set. Or again, daily one RM training. That's not necessarily what we're saying. We're just saying that relationship seems to be there and is probably your best bet 
in terms of a starting point for each of those adaptations. So that is a longer than anticipated overview of what was talked about in the video. If you watch the video, hopefully you picked up on something else as well, um, but should at least get everyone up to speed. Yeah, man, I think you did a good job. I think the video does a really, really, it, it's a big topic, right? Like you, it, it's, I think this is probably the vast majority of people's goals that kind of end up in the kind of the end of evidence-based sector. I think, you know, if you ask most people, they're probably interested in to some capacity of strength on a few key movements, but also want to get, you know, uh, you know, bigger, um, along with that. So I think it's a big topic. People care about it and you did your best to do that. in a pretty, you know, all things considered pretty, you know, short amount of time and then even shorter in that recap. But I think you still, um, nailed on a lot of the main points. So I think the place where I think we can spend time for the rest of the podcast is kind of diving into maybe some more common misconceptions with power building and then also kind of using some of the questions we got on the YouTube video um, as kind of a jumping off point with some of this stuff. So I think one to, to kind of start with, and this is somewhat inspired um, by one of the uh, comments on the YouTube video. I'm not even going to try with this username as I will completely butcher it. Um, but thank you for the comments, everyone that left them. Um, and it, it really comes down to the idea of to some degree, you may be able to maximize both qualities at once for a while, but probably there's going to come a point where some degree of specialization is going to be required. And so I guess I'd, I would like to hear your kind of thought process, your rationale on kind of maybe how you go about structuring this a little bit longer term, potentially, you know, having periods where hypertrophy is more of a focus, where strength is more of a focus. Um, do you think that you can reach, you know, your genetic potential in each kind of training for both the entire way? Do you think there's going to come a point where you have to kind of say, I am a power lifter and I'm going to put these, you know, for example, my calves, the hypertrophy of my calves kind of on the sideline because um, I really want to maximize my development in powerlifting. Just kind of talk about that stuff with kind of the, the specialization aspect of it and kind of how that influences things in terms of maximizing your potential in kind of either goal. Yeah, this is, this is a tough question. Um, I think on one hand, I do think with sound programming, both in the short term and the long term, in terms of how you might vary things over time, um, you can, you can be very, very good at both. Right. Um, and get like, get very close to your quote unquote natty max in both. Right. Um, but at this, on the other hand, like the best, the best powerlifters aren't also competing in bodybuilding. Um, now there's a constraint there of like, yeah, of course a bodybuilding prep, like is not going to be conducive to your powerlifting training, but Put, put another way, right? The best powerlifters don't necessarily, or at least aren't frequently those with um, like the best physiques from a building aspect of that power building term, right? Obviously they essentially all have excellent physiques, but the, the point is, is that those at the top are generally at the top in one. Um, so it might be a let's put those at the, the top aside, right? Because let's, let's talk about the people that take this very seriously, maybe quite gifted in, in one or both, or at least interested in maximizing one or both of these in the long term. And to some degree, I have found that 
if you really take a, a truly long-term perspective about this endeavor of, of lifting weights, I've almost found it easier to sustain either goal when they care about both, because you can kind of shift that focus, keep things fresh and resensitize, whether it be physiologically or psychologically to the other one, right? Like when I just feel like a powerlifter needs a pretty non-specific training block, um, even taking a couple weeks completely away from the main lifts or close variation and just do some, some bro stuff and they get pretty excited about that. That's a lot easier. Like that's a lot more effective phase, if you will. When, and then when they return back to, to more powerlifting oriented training, um, that can go pretty well. So I guess to summarize my answer to your question is like, I think you can be, I think you can get pretty dang close to, to your best, um, like to, to your potential at both over the long term. Um, but you might not be able to, to get to the top, if you will. Um, I also think that's time permitting, right? Like <laughs> training, training to, to maximize both, um, in a given training block, it's just going to be, take more time than a powerlifter trains and take more time than a bodybuilder trains, right? Because not only do you have to do the, the SPD volume and the variations, but you also got to probably do 10 plus sets for, for back. Whereas you could probably get away with just a handful of sets. If you're a power lifter, honestly, that's that point shouldn't be overlooked because I think almost everyone is time constrained in a way. Um, some people have very clear time constraints. Other people have constraints with just like their ability to stay focused for over a two hour session. Um, especially when there's maybe mental fatigue going into the session from a long work day or other, you know, professional commitments or personal commitments, that sort of thing. Um, so from a practical perspective, I have gotten to the point with individual clients where we do kind of have that discussion, like wh wh which are we going to go with here? Right? Like, I think, I think it's going to be hard to do both. I think we're going to have to go back and forth between the two and there might be X, Y, Z trade-offs. Um, so to summarize for like a fourth time, I would say, I think you can do both. Um, I think you can do very well with both, but whether it's always practical, I think can be pretty, uh, individual dependent. That's, that's basically how I was going to summarize my answer too, is it is philosophically possible to get very close to maximizing both. I don't think you would ever maximize both, but you'd get pretty dang close, but practically unlikely, mostly due to the time constraint aspect of it. If people had four hours of train every single day and could take, you know, a little 30 minute break in the middle of their session to have a Gatorade, eat, eat a little bit of food and then go, you know, have like after their SBD session, go hit their calves for their, you know, 16th to 20th set a week with a little bit of extra energy. Do you, I think you get pretty dang close. Yeah, probably. That's just not anybody's reality for the most part. I think if it were the case, I think you get, like I said, pretty close, but I just, I have a hard time believing anyone's kind of working on that schedule for the most part, even those who are very highly invested and really want to do this stuff. So I, I tend to take a, a pretty darn similar approach. I think, like you said, you can look to, you can look to, uh, uh, you know, elite powerlifters, elite bodybuilders realize that there's not a ton of overlap. There's some, you know, fuzziness and, and some, uh, logistical constraints that may influence that being the case. 
purely just thinking about kind of like doubling the events you have to do slash pay for like that is could be an issue too so it's not a perfect comparison by any means but and realizing like you said that the the top powerlifters have very very solid development particularly of the muscles that are involved in the powerlifts but maybe the quote-unquote you know, entire part of like an X frame that a bodybuilder is going after there, maybe that have a few lagging spots that could use some a little extra attention. So I think the point there is to say powerlifting and, and, and a power building type approach can definitely lead to the result that I think ultimately a lot of people want, even if you're not maximizing it, that makes sense. So I think that's a trap people get caught in a lot of the time is like, if I'm not optimizing this, there's no chance it'll lead to the result that I ultimately want. And I just don't think that's the case. I think somebody who's like very dedicated and consistently trains potentially suboptimally, but does that for a really long period of time, I think you can definitely still reach the result you're kind of after. So just, I guess I just want to hammer home that fact. Like for example, if I was training somebody who purely cared about hypertrophy, they're probably going to do calf volume somewhere in the 10 to 20 set per week range, probably based on hypertrophy recommendations. Now a power lifter that doesn't care about that necessarily as a primary goal. And they kind of view that as a secondary goal, but they do six very, very focused sets every single week with progression and focus and all that kind of stuff. I still think that can definitely get you to a place you're happy with, with enough you know time and effort invested. So don't think that just because something isn't maximized or optimized that you're not able to have the directionality and the progression that you want and maybe even reach the threshold of like visuals or whatever that you're kind of after. So I think that's just something important to keep in mind, but I think we're on the same page in the sense that philosophically possible to get pretty dang close to maximizing both, but practically probably unlikely. So that's where the longer term you go with this kind of stuff and the more advanced you get, you may want to start, you know, flipping these kind of things a little bit and specializing a bit more. But in terms of actual practical programming Josh, how would you go about um, kind of, I guess, going from one phase of specialization to another? Is there any kind of tricks of the trade that you like to use there? Is it really a pretty, pretty, uh, you know, easy flip of the variables, kind of like you talked about in the in the video? With some, with some kind of under the hood programming stuff, you would go from like kind of handling that specialization process from the back end. Yeah. Um... I will say kind of the periodization changes in practice are often going to be reactive based on things like schedule constraints, things like um, psychological factors, just like what they're interested in. Like it's just normal for your interests to kind of ebb and flow and you get more excited about one goal at a certain time and more excited about the other. Now maybe the coaches spot it, it or what their role is at certain times is to kind of course correct and, and, and keep that you know, within reason, but I think you can lean into that, uh, to some degree, or, or maybe there's a, an injury that comes up from, from powerlifting type training. Okay. Awesome. This is a perfect time to, to do one of these more hypertrophy oriented phases or physique oriented phases. Um, but let's put that stuff aside. The, the, the good news here is that the, the kind of shift of variables, right. Going from prioritizing volume and proximity to failure transitioning more towards prioritizing load and worrying less about proximity to failure, worrying a little bit less about volume fits within just our general model of periodization. Now the volume one, we could probably have a longer discussion of whether we want to maintain that, especially in the main lifts, that sort of thing. But um, maybe just like overall workload. Also when you add in like accessory type movements, yeah, it's probably a little bit higher workload 
um, earlier in a training cycle. So it kind of fits in well with that, right? And after a really hard, heavy strength block, whether that's a meat preparation or just, you know, a strength block that ends in, in some sort of heavy sets in the gym or even like a mock meet, it's usually a good time. And, and it seems to line up pretty well with people being like, that was awesome. But like, I would love a little bit of a break right now. Okay, let's transition to, you know, de- honestly, this kind of depends on the build of the athlete um, and how built, how well built they are for, for powerlifting. And this is kind of on a lift by lift basis. Researcher hat off, coach hat on. Uh, if someone isn't built well for a lift and they just take a little bit of a break from it or do like SSB squats or split squats or something like that, instead of uh, like pause competition squats or, or the comp squat itself, and then they go back to it, things can feel really, really good. And that can be really productive training. Um, but anyway, you could just pull back a little bit, right. And change the goal, the goalpost, right. Maybe it's a trying to get a new six RM on sumo deadlift, which in the grand scheme of things is, is pretty nonspecific compared to a lot of other approaches you could take. Um, and then that's a, a relatively small part of the training and the rest is oriented towards, um, maximizing hypertrophy of the hip extensors, right. Um, and really kind of putting your, uh, you know, going into bodybuilder mode after a small number of sets on the main lift or whatever's kind of temporarily filling it in. And that also is going to be additional time and energy that you can put on something you might neglect a little bit more in more of that powerlifting type of phase. Um, you mentioned calves, right? Like jokes aside, that's true. Uh, biceps, right? If you do best with 25 to 30 plus sets a week of biceps, which, you know, I know people have kind of swung the other way from volume. That happens sometimes. I, I think some people can really benefit from that. Doing that when you're not in a strength block and you're, you're warming up for a good amount of time for single at eight, single at nine, that's a great time to do that. And hey, the good news is that's not going to be super hard to maintain when you're back in that more strength focused phase. Um, and then, uh, you're also, you also might resensitize to some degree during that lower volume period. Now going back to 20 to 30 sets or whatever I said, um, is more effective when you go back. So is that 100% optimal for bicep growth? Maybe not, but I think it's pretty dang close and also keeps things interesting and, and, and keeps things enjoyable. Um, I will say that I'm talking from the lens of someone that's relatively more advanced though. Um, I think if you have someone that's been training, for less than five, six years. And probably what's more helpful is just, they, they have a lot of low hanging gain, low hanging gains to, to, to get, if you will. Um, they probably don't even need to worry about that periodization side of things. Um, and they can probably be fine with kind of a concurrent approach, moderate across the board, just, you know, fine tune the, the, the protocol every few weeks, that sort of thing. And, and you're going to be off to the races for a pretty long time where my head is, is at right now is yeah. Someone that's been training eight, nine, 10 plus years, and they still care about both these goals, which is pretty dang common. Maybe they can't sustain super heavy, hard powerlifting training year round. Um, but they also can't sustain maximalist bodybuilding training, um, while they're doing a meat prep sort of thing. So I think it kind of naturally falls into place for a lot of people and, you know, just the longer we do this, the more we, we pick up on those patterns in terms of like, oh, when you, you know, take three weeks after a meet 
and keep it pretty chill on the hypertrophy side um, and they go back to SPD, you know, there's a little bit of a, a ramp up, but they don't lose too many gains. But when it goes six weeks, for example, maybe that's not the case. Don't read too much into those individual numbers, but you just kind of pick up on those patterns within a, a system that you use. Um, so yeah, if you want to take the periodization route, that's, those are my, uh, my thoughts. Nice. Yeah. I don't think I have too much to add there. Ultimately, I think a lot of that is going to be dictated by the, the ratio of the individual's goals. So like what degree do you care about strength? What degree do you care about hypertrophy? Um, the individual tolerance of each, the, like how, how good of a hypertrophy stimulus they get from the movements that they care about strength on. That's another variable that I think matters with a lot of this stuff. So it's just, it's biasing those principles to focus on the, the adaptation that you care about for a given amount of time, pretty in line with the way that Josh describes in the video. It's just the practical extension of that. So I'm not going to belabor that too much, but it's, good. it's honestly quite simple, but when you layer in the, the practical stuff, it, it's, I, I don't want to be like too alarmist here, but it's kind of easy to mess up if I'm being honest, mm -hmm. especially when you layer in those individual considerations because, and, and I, I totally failed to mention the specific point you said in terms of like how well the main lift is for growing uh, the prime movers for that individual. Cause that just seems to vary a ton. Yep. Um, and that's, that's just such a massive variable for, for individualizing for someone that only cares about powerlifting. And even more so for someone that wants to take this more power building approach. Um, so, and, and I mentioned this in the video, right? The, the goal isn't to prescriptively tell you, yeah, you do a single at eight and then you do two sets of five back off on the main lift. And then you go do three by 12 on leg press. Like, yeah, that might be a good starting point for a lot of people, but uh, you, person A might be a single at nine and then go do six sets on leg press, right? Person B might be uh, two singles at five, uh, a few power sets with 70% because they're battling an injury or they're prone to a certain injury or something. And then two sets of 12 on the leg press, right? And then every other combination you can think of and also maybe adding in a more isolation type movement because, you know, last time they got dice, their rec fem wasn't, wasn't looking as beefy as they wanted to, that sort of thing. Um, so, th so the goal is to give you the concepts, right. And the, the general directionality and even, even with that directionality and these concepts, even from the research with all these data points, all these, all these studies, we don't know the exact nature of these relationships, but I think we have some competence in the directionality. And then from there, it's like, it's all the practical side of things. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with that. I guess one question I thought of while you were talking and, and kind of and somewhat in line with what I was talking about with the with the leverages and stuff is you've talked about advocating for this more sniper based approach where you know we're we're polarizing the training, making sure every set has a has a very specific goal. When is a case where you would more so favor that shotgun esque approach, and why do you think that? some people have had success with such an approach. Basically, how do you explain those anecdotes? What's a, what's an example like approach that. You uh, so let's go, you know, five by five, 
yeah. let's go um, maybe some of the very, very high volume and high load DUP type approaches, mm-hmm. um, things like that, where it's, it's a ton of specific volume, um, generally pretty close to failure, maybe moderate loads for the most part. Um, and yeah, I'm just basically giving you an opportunity to say, yeah. how do you explain those anecdotes? And then yeah. also when would you favor such an approach over yeah. like basically what's the, uh, yeah. what's the other side of the coin to the polarized approach and when would you favor yeah. that? Yeah, I think I think you alluded to this when you're kind of asking the question. I think leverages are huge, man. And I, I think uh, if you get someone that's just like built to powerlift and squats blow up their quads, bench blows up their pecs, like you like you like put these you put some of these powerlifters, dude, on a chest press machine and they don't know how to like set it up to like train their pecs, or you put them in a pec deck and they don't know how to like contract their pecs but their pecs are freaking huge and they've just been bench pressing that that's one type of person you put them on high volume bench press DUP and they blow up both strength and hypertrophy. Right. And then like, that's probably some combination of leverages and also just genetic predisposition to, to being a, you know, high responder. Um, you put another person on a high volume DUP bench, uh, program that's very specific with very little accessories. And their pecs hurt, shoulders hurt, and their strength goes in the the crapper. Um, honestly, I think the former people are more likely to uh, pursue coaching to get them from a really good level to an elite level, and then I think the latter people are more likely to uh, pursue coaching to get them through a plateau. And I think the the latter people, right, the people that might not you know, blow up from just, from just bench pressing, for example, I think their potentials aren't necessarily lower, um, than the former, the, the former group of people, if you will. Um, but I think it requires a little bit more precision, at least in my experience. Um, and I think recognizing that when, when someone comes to us is a skill that we've kind of learned over time. So that's how I would explain it. Those, those highly specific approaches. And you use the example of, of, you know, like moderate high volume, close to failure, kind of that, that shotgun approach on the specific lift. Um, again, just same idea of how, how I explained the, the specific DUP for some people that's going to go really, really well. They're going to tolerate it just fine. Other people it's, it's going to kind of run them into the ground. Um, maybe not on bench press, but, but maybe on the other two lifts, that sort of thing. Yeah, I tend to agree. I, I think that's just a, that's always like an important one to, to hammer home to, to kind of, you know, we, we kind of talk about our, our approach and kind of the philosophical grounds that get us there. And I think a lot of people are like quick to like raise their hand and be like, okay, well, what about all these anecdotes? And I think those are pretty easily explained when you kind of talk about some of the stuff that you, you mentioned. Um, another kind of interesting thought experiment, I guess that I think about with this kind of question is for dialing in the amount of work that you want to do on kind of the powerlifting movements, it's kind of this balance between how much exposure slash practice you need to really dial down your technique and hone the movement and, and, and kind of master it versus how much can you tolerate. And I would, I would guess I'd just like to hear in your experience and kind of how you think about this, 
it seems to me there's kind of a paradox in that the people that are built poorly for these movements, it also seems to come to them a little bit less naturally. Like I'm thinking of somebody who's very poorly built to squat, the likelihood that they need a decent amount of work to like feel pretty practice with their squat is probably pretty high, but it's also probably going to beat them up pretty bad. So that is, I'm just curious to see how you kind of think through that problem. How are, how are you, which of those two factors are you prioritizing? Is this where, you know, kind of periodizing volume allocation comes into play? Mm-hmm. Um, those kind of things. So again, researcher, researcher hat off, um, just observational hat on. I also think that people that might not be as well built for the main lift, if they're currently just very fatigued going into a session, it's hard, like, like their technique gets worse and the, the strength practice they get is just not nearly as good compared as if fatigue is managed and they can actually go in there and sink, sink the squat pretty easily, that sort of thing. Even if, you know, they're not like, they weren't born to, to squat, if you will. Um, yeah, I think to some degree it's, it, it might be a bit of an uphill battle, but I think you can kind of optimize it out if you will. Um, or you can kind of like individualize it out because, um, if you have an individual that, um, maybe needs a little bit more practice theoretically, but they can't necessarily tolerate it. Well, the good news is that like, yeah, like strength is a skill strength is specific, but like, and, and no matter how long you've been training, there's always, I, I, my personal opinion is there's skill adaptations to be had, but it's also like you're, you're standing in one spot or laying on a bench and, and that, that's, that's the skill, right? Um, and and Mike Mike T is seething right now. No, like, like, (laughs) I'm just kidding. Like, I think I can hold both of those, those uh, thoughts in my head at the same time. Right. In the sense that like, the like you can improve like definitely improve over time but also like uh in order to be competent you don't necessarily like need a ton of specific work sure i guess is 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 where i'm coming from here um and i think that's just part of the uh part of the optimization game on an on an individual level but i don't know if you have like a, a kicker response here i don't think so i mean it's I would say on average, I probably tend to prioritize tolerance over the skill aspect as well, just because if tolerance becomes an issue, we literally get zero skill practice. So, you know, from a practical perspective, I think that kind of makes sense on which to prioritize. Um, I think, at least in my experience, I do think that's kind of where like periodizing volume allocation can come into play. When you remove some things, Um, and we've had, we've had this conversation so many times over the years on kind of what to do with volume, what to do with volume allocation. This to me is the case where it makes the most sense to me in the sense that when you do have that case where practice and, um, tolerance are at odds with one another, and you're able to take something out as you're getting closer to competition, whether that's accessory volume, whether that's intercept fatigue, whatever it is, um, that opens up a little bit of space. And you can kind of uh, move some additional practice there closer to competition, really get things dialed in, um, and then kind of take advantage of that with the short-term effects that that kind of brings along with it. Um, But on average, I think I tend to agree. Like for the vast majority of somebody's training year, I don't think having the absolute maximum amount of practice is paramount, um, given that, you know, there's still a good amount of it. You're still getting the really big hitter sets, the top sets, things like that. 
um, where they're still able to, you know, nickel and dime their way through those skill adaptations and things like that. But, um, but yeah, no, I, I didn't really have an answer. I was just curious if you thought about it any differently so, than I did. So could, could you, that be summarized as like tolerance is permissive to skill practice? Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think so. And that's very and similar like to what you were saying day, about the positions you could reach when, when fatigue, I think it's a similar concept. That's just right. like a, that's like, that would be like a leading indicator to me right. to, to, right. to, uh, tolerance issues that are maybe a little bit more deeply right. seated then, where you literally then, not being the, able to train. Yeah, exactly. And I think there's a, again, an optimization game on the individual level in terms of how do you best set up that practice yep. to maximize the practice within yep. the tolerance constraints. Um, I know Zach, you, you have someone that, you know, that looks like a couple singles at five, right? <laughs> for another person, maybe it's, it's really load mediated, for example, and maybe a, a, a five rep max is, is the way to go. This is uh, that the, just to go on this for a little bit, just through my own experience, this is something I've, I've come around to being a pretty big believer that tolerance issues can definitely be load mediated versus RP mediated, which is, I don't know why that's the case. I don't yeah. claim to know why that happens, but I, I, through my experience, I've definitely come to, to kind of see that that it can be two separate things. And that can definitely lead to a different practical conclusion on how you're going to get around mm -hmm. those tolerance constraints to, to maximize mm -hmm. practice. That's ultimately productive. Um, so yeah, I didn't mean to interrupt you there, but I, I think those, that sounds like a trivial thing, but I, I definitely, in my experience mm -hmm. have seen like substantially different amounts of practice tolerated. If I kind of bias one variable versus the other, like the singles approach that you mentioned, that's relatively high load, but the RP trigger seems to be the issue there where I've had other clients where, you know, you can throw three sets of five to six at them at a nine RP and they're fine. Um, but if you go up to a single at a, you know, a seven or whatever, 90% of one RM, that starts to create some issues. So it's, it's very interesting how that kind of stuff can run into roadblocks and how that mm -hmm. leads to the optimization game, yeah. getting to some pretty different conclusions. Yeah. And, and I think kind of where our, our thought, pro our thought processes have led us is that you kind of take these variables and like, like, you're, like step one is take these variables we talked about in the video and we've talked about in the, this podcast, put them all the way up to like what it would theoretically be the most beneficial for the individual. And that might be daily, daily maxing. Right. But also none of our lifters actually daily max. So, okay. Why is that the case? It's because you're essentially pulling back from there based on tolerance based and based on practical constraints. Right. Um, and some of those practical constraints might be having multiple training goals and periodizing around that to make sure training quality is high. Um, training enjoyment is high, that sort of thing. Um, so yeah, like for this example here, okay, we pull back in terms of load a good amount that doesn't do the trick. Okay. We might have to pull back even more. And now it's like, okay, we're doing like a single at 80%. Like, man, these, <laughs> this volume is, or this is, uh, like that's just not doing a whole lot. Um, and the repetition velocity is going to be so fast that, okay, let's just go ahead and get that slower repetition velocity loss from the intercept fatigue, train closer to failure for our quote unquote strength oriented set. So we just broke the rules, the quote unquote rules, which should be, should be held loosely. Um, and kind of understanding the, the concepts and, and knowing when within a given set of constraints, you have to kind of come up with creative solutions.
Hundred um, percent. Yeah, man. I think for the most part, I think we did this topic pretty good justice. Um, excited to be back on the the regular podcast uh, grind. Hope everyone enjoyed hearing us back um, for the first time in a while. Uh, yeah, kind of lost how to close these out anymore. Do you have any closing thoughts here, Mister Pelland? Uh, just subscribe to the YouTube channel. I think that'd be uh, pretty cool. I mean, I don't know. I think we broke the internet because I think we're almost <laughs> up to two thousand subscribers. Let's which go! Is, Shout which out, Mister Beast. Yeah, Mister <laughs> Mister Beast. <laughs> Oh man, he was shaking in his boots, man, when we dropped that. Also, there's a copycat on YouTube. Um, so, right, we post this. I can't remember what day it is. Or we, we publish this video. Wolf Coaching goes, yeah, man. He, he, he plans the video, he records the video, he edits the video, he publishes the video. And mind you, it takes a little bit of time to like upload the actual video file. I think his are in 4K. And. <laughs> In like 20 minutes, he posts the same video. <laughs> so, yeah, there's a copycat out there. There's our, uh, is this our first internet beef? Yeah, I guess so. Uh, C- coming back with a vengeance. Yeah. We're <laughs> that, no, that was, uh, jo- jokes aside, that was pretty wild that we we had no idea and it ended up being a very similar, lots of similar concepts and a similarly titled video within, I think, like 30 minutes of, of publishing it. But we published it first, so... Um, so we're good so we're good Um, but yeah subscribe to the youtube channel um this is really cringe to say but press the notification and did you know that 80 percent of our subscribers (laughs) our videos don't show up in your feed yeah the algorithms are out are out to get us um they keep changing on us man uh so yeah also let us know if if there's any topics you want to see um this video, this podcast should be on YouTube. So you can comment there like, hey, this is a topic I'd, I'd be interested in seeing. Or you can comment on the first video we published. Um, or you can email or DM us or whatever. And then also, we alluded to this before, if there's anyone you would want to see us have on the podcast, collaborate with on, on YouTube, and uh, particularly someone that would be interesting that might have like an opposing viewpoint or um, yeah, just someone you think would be a productive conversation with, let us know in those same spots. Uh, but otherwise, we'll we'll see you in the next video or see you in the next podcast. Um, <laughs> Man, he's a YouTuber. Already. Let's go. All right. See you guys.